From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA executive producer Steve Reddish and VOA Midwest correspondent Kane Farabaugh. Welcome, Steve and Kane. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, here are the issues. The highly anticipated 2022 midterm elections coming up on November 8th will be a critically important time as the balance of power could change in Congress between Democrats and Republicans. In this election, all 435 seats in the House of Representatives are at stake, with the Democrats holding only a slim eight-seat majority. One-third of the 100-member U.S. Senate is being contested at the polls, with the Senate currently evenly split 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans. In a primetime address, President Joe Biden delivered a stark warning to Americans that the future of the nation's democracy could rest on midterm elections. Former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is on the brink of a dramatic comeback as near final results show he is on course to win a majority in parliament with far-right support. U.S. and Western officials say Iran may soon arm Russia with surface-to-surface short-range ballistic missiles in what would be significant escalation of Iranian support for Russia's war on Ukraine. White House's National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the U.S. has information that indicates North Korea is covertly supplying Russia with a significant number of artillery shells for its war against Ukraine. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, for these midterm elections, various polls are showing inflation and crime to be top issues for voters. So, Steve, what do you see as the deciding factors in this election? First, I'm just so glad Election Day is next week. I was pretty sure this would be the endless campaign. But every week we've talked about the election on this show, we've reminded the audience that historically the first midterm election after a president is elected or reelected usually sees a loss of seats in Congress for that president's party. So going into the midterm elections this year, after Joe Biden was elected two years ago, the expectation was Democrats would lose seats in Congress, which right now the Democrats, as you mentioned, barely control. And so far, those fundamentals seem to be playing out. Another factor, the president's popularity and the economy. The president's popularity, not very high. Biden's average approval rating in recent polls is around 43%. His disapproval ratings are up in the mid-50s, around 55%. That's not a good sign for Democrats. Most of that low approval rating is because of the economy, which... We're experiencing high inflation, high prices for everyday needs like gasoline, food, and shelter. So the conventional political wisdom is that right now, Republicans will likely retake Congress, at least the House of Representatives. Most eyes are on the U.S. Senate, which is split evenly, 50-50. Democrats control it because the vice president is the deciding vote in any tie vote. And specific races in Pennsylvania and Georgia, where the control of the Senate will likely come down to those two races, the split seems to be getting wider as both sides go into their individual corners to fight this last few rounds 
before the election is over. If I could add on to that, Kim, you know, Steve mentioned that historically the party in the presidency often loses the midterm elections. Well, arguably the reason why it's so close right now at all is because of the restriction to abortion access and the ruling by the Supreme Court earlier this summer. That has energized primarily suburban women voters who were crucial in the 2000 election, which helped Joe Biden win that election. And so the reason why this race is so close is because that is the key issue that has fired up a lot of voters who will turn out to support Democrats in this midterm election. Also, Kane, what are some of the other issues for Midwesterners for this upcoming midterm election? Well, you know, we live here in an agricultural area, and obviously the war in Ukraine is weighing heavy on commodity prices. Uh, you know, everything is expensive, but so is the cost of the commodities that they're sending out there, you know, corn and soybeans. But, you know, when it costs you so much more to get fertilizer and gasoline just to be able to farm out here, you know, that's contributing to inflation. Steve mentioned in, in his comments, inflation is the key thing weighing on everybody's mind. Well, it doesn't really matter about whatever else you're doing. If the cost of everything you're doing is more expensive. That is the single biggest issue that any voter, be it a farmer, be it a city worker, be it a finance guy up in New York City. I mean, really, it's almost a unifying factor in what might actually be influencing people's sentiments when they're ticking off those choices at the ballot. One of the things that Democrats have been doing, as Kay mentioned, the abortion issue and the right to privacy has been something that the Democrats have been banging on as far as an issue. That and the issue of democracy and whether or not the American democracy will thrive beyond the election denial and the falsehoods that were put forth by ex-President Trump after the 2020 election, his claims that the election was stolen from him, his claims that there was massive fraud, Democrats are using both the abortion issue and the democracy issue as a way to show voters that if they vote Republican, these things that everybody holds dear to their hearts will be lost. One of the problems Democrats have in trying to make that case is right now, all Americans are paying higher prices. They're feeling the pinch of the economy. It's something that is tangible right now, while the Democrats are trying to portray and put together a picture of what might happen. It's harder to sell what might happen versus what is happening now. And that is where we are as far as where this election stands. And it should be noted, I guess, while this is a partisan issue, it should be pointed out that by and large, there are not candidates in the Democrat Party right now running on a message of election denial or running on a message of them not willing to accept the outcomes of the election. This is primarily a tactic that is being used by Republicans and many Republicans on the far right of their party who are running for these offices. And it's not just at the Senate level, it's also the congressional level, it's also at the state level. And so to be clear, the Democrats are trying to frame this argument in a partisan way, but their party is not the ones who are falsely denying the outcome of a previous election and refusing to accept the outcome of the one that we're all waiting mm -hmm. to see. Yes, that's a really good point. So do you all expect any surprises coming up on November 8th? I think the biggest surprise right now might be the uh, race in North Carolina being as close as it's been. Would you agree, Steve? That is a close race. That's a surprising race. Although Democrats have been trying for the last 10 years to 
turn North Carolina from a reliably red state to something that is considered purplish, where Democrats can get elected in North Carolina. I'm also interested in how the race in Iowa, close to where you are, Kane, turns out with 87-year-old Charles Grassley, a Republican who's held that seat for as long as I can remember, running up against an Afghanistan war veteran. It seems as if while many Iowans still support Grassley's policies, many are considering, should we send back someone that old to the Senate? So the age issue is something that is on voters' minds there. I'm sure the age issue will also play itself out over the next several years as Joe Biden and Donald Trump make decisions as to whether or not they're going to run again for president in 2024. And what also probably sets the Iowa campaign, really doesn't set it apart, but it's a matching narrative across the country. For Grassley to lose, voter turnout is going to have to be higher than anticipated or higher than historically present in these midterm elections because turnout would, by all accounts, favor the Democratic challenger against Grassley. But uh, it is ironic and also perhaps surprising to everybody that this is his closest race in 42 years. He is someone who champions farmers, who champions the agricultural makeup of the state. He's somebody who's been widely popular and supported in, in the state. So the fact that this race is close, though he is, it looks like he's favored to win, does speak to how important turnout it could be. And turnout is going to be critical all across in every race. So far, the early voting numbers show More people are coming out to vote early than they did in the 2018 midterms, but not as big a a rate as they turned out in the 2020 race. But there were all kinds of other circumstances. Not only was a presidential race, but it was also during COVID, voting early, mail-in voting, all were in play in 2020. Well, we won't have long to wait because Tuesday, November 8th, is right around the corner. Just wanted to move on to mention last week House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, was attacked in his home. One of the biggest questions, at least the people that I've been talking to are asking, is how did this person get by security to enter the home? As far as I have read and know about the story, there isn't necessarily security around the home of the Pelosi's when the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, is not there. She was in Washington. Her husband was in their home in San Francisco, all the way across the country. There are cameras poised and focused on the home, and those cameras can be seen back in Washington. But because the Speaker wasn't there, because There are all kinds of other threats going on all around the country as far as election violence threats are concerned. It wasn't noticed that someone smashed a window and broke into the house. It wasn't noticed back here in Washington until all of a sudden Capitol Police saw police cars outside the home and saw the flashing lights and then focused their attention on what happened in the home. And by that time, police had already entered the home and made the arrest in the case. One other really interesting part of this story, the alleged assailant is apparently a Canadian citizen who is in the U.S. illegally, according to U.S. immigration officials. 
we should probably explain that just a little bit. So the alleged attacker is apparently a Canadian citizen, but he entered the United States through the border with California and Mexico. And he came into the country legally. He's a Canadian citizen, so you don't have to have a visa to enter the country. He came into the country legally, but he stayed past his ability to be here visiting this country. And so that is how he is here illegally. He came through the port of entry legally, but stayed beyond the time he was allowed to stay in this country and did not return to Canada or to Mexico, the country to which he entered the United States from. And so now it looks like Immigration and Customs Enforcement is trying to, I guess, get custody of him and exploring deportation proceedings. In Israel, former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is on the brink of a dramatic comeback. Netanyahu is 73. He's one of Israel's most controversial political figures. So what does his potential victory signal regarding people's mood in Israel? Netanyahu's been a force in Israeli politics as far back as the Clinton administration. There's an interesting quote here that says he's been sidelined by much of the country's political mainstream given a lifeline by the rise of a far-right party, some of whose leaders are arguably extremists. And that is very reminiscent of the political dynamic in this country, in the United States as well. And so it looks like the tenor and the nature and the makeup of politics in Israel is closely mirroring that of the United States at the moment. And in order for Netanyahu to leave now, he has courted uh, right-wing extremists in a rival party that is now aligned with his party, the Likud party, And that is how he is able to have a majority in the Nesset. And so in order for him to govern and to lead, there's no more centrist politics in Israel. You have to cater to those that are helping prop up your government and helping give you a majority so that you can govern. And I think this will be an issue moving forward. I'm going to be looking for how President Biden and his administration deal with Israel now, especially on the issue of Palestinian independence, which Netanyahu has steadfastly opposed in his years as prime minister previously, as well as Israel's role in Russia's war on Ukraine. So far, Israel has kind of been at an arm's length distance, relatively quiet because it needs Russia's support to keep Syria in check on its northeastern boundary, as well as keep Iran in check. So how Israel figures into the war in Ukraine is what I'm going to be watching for over the next few months. Whether or not Netanyahu can sustain this coalition is also going to be something that is going to come up in question in the weeks and months to come. Very interesting. And we will be talking more about Russia and Ukraine just after the break. We will take that break right now. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com slash issues. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA executive producer Steve Reddish and VOA Midwest correspondent Kane Farabaugh. Well, Russia says it will now uphold an agreement that put in place a procedure that guaranteed the safety of ships carrying Ukrainian grain, fertilizer and other foods through a humanitarian carter in the Black Sea. How much of a relief will this be for countries experiencing shortage of food and other needed items? 
it's only a temporary fix because the actual agreement, which uh, began in August, is only through the 19th of November. And so while this continues to allow the grain to flow, and particularly in African countries that need this critically, this doesn't give long-term security or long-term confidence that these grain shipments won't stop after the agreement ends on the 19th of November. So I think that in order for there to be stability and for this to cease being an issue, everybody wants to see there to be a longer-term agreement. One of the things that Russia gets out of this agreement is support from many African countries, many countries around the world that see Russia as a protector, as a possible investor, but they need the grain, they need the food. And if Russia is going to block these shipments, then why would these countries support Russia at the UN, elsewhere in other ventures and other opportunities for Russia to exert its influence around the world. Russia, by pulling out, found itself in a position where, okay, our support is going to dry up elsewhere. We need to get back into this grain deal, at least for the time being. And as Kane mentioned, if it expires in three weeks, three weeks isn't going to make as big a deal in Russia's plans as the long-term impact that it would have as far as losing support from various different countries And that's something that Russia needs because that support is drying up as it continues its war on Ukraine. And just another aspect of this, the United States and at least one allied nation continue to observe indications that Iran is preparing to arm Russia with surface-to-surface short-range ballistic missiles, though Iran denies doing this. So what is the status of this and how does it tie in with the stalled talks with Iran's nuclear weapons program? It doesn't seem like the United States is going to revive the talks anytime soon, although it is something that the Biden administration has placed a great deal of importance on, is getting back into the Iran nuclear deal. However, with Iran supplying drones and now possibly supplying more surface-to-surface short-range ballistic missiles, it's unlikely that the United States is going to move heaven and earth to get a deal done with Iran, will move further to isolate Iran and do what it can to stop these ballistic missile shipments if they happen. As well, you have to look at the situation that's going on in Iran right now, where protests are happening all of the time. There's that issue as well for the United States to consider as far as moving the talks on the Iran nuclear deal forward while Iran is cracking down on its own citizens. The other concern for Ukraine, too, if there are these surface-to-surface ballistic missiles being sent from Iran to Russia in order to deploy them in Ukraine, there's a spokesperson for Ukraine's Air Force Command. He said that they have no effective defense against the surface-to-surface missiles. While they might be able to shoot them down, it's very difficult to do. So, I mean, this could change the equation on the battlefield in Ukraine. And also there's a possibility that North Korea may also be preparing to supply Russia with missiles. Is there any indication of this? There was some intelligence earlier during the war a few months ago that uh, North Korea was supplying Russia with weapon systems. That was in the news world and then kind of knocked down somewhat. Russia denied it. North Korea denied it. There hadn't been a lot of sightings of North Korean weapon systems in the barrage against Ukraine. If North Korea does start supplying Russia with weapons, that is certainly something that the United States is going to take a close look at. 
And it goes along with what's going on with North Korea scaring its neighbors with a barrage of missile tests as well. I'll provide some personal insight here. When I was active duty in the U.S. military, I was stationed in Seoul, South Korea in the 1990s. And my first couple of weeks in Seoul, which is where I was stationed, was at a time in which the North Koreans at that time under the leadership of Kim Jong-il had threatened to drown Seoul and South Korea and the U.S. military forces stationed there in a sea of fire, quote unquote. We are now 30 years or so beyond that point, And this is something that the U.S. military is used to, I should say, in South Korea. It's something the South Koreans deal with consistently. While North Korea is now a nuclear power and has nuclear weapons, the nature of what they do, be it missile tests across their territorial waters on their border with South Korea and artillery fire across the demilitarized zone, all of these things are meant to ratchet up tensions and to gather attention and to gain attention so that the United States and the world doesn't forget that North Korea is out there and North Korea wants to be heard and wants to be listened to. It's just that uh, the United States doesn't respond to the aggression. The United States hasn't stopped military exercises. These military exercises have occurred annually. They occur almost every year. Sometimes it's a negotiating tactic for the United States to say, listen, we'll stop these drills if we're going to engage in talks that wind up getting us to a solution over this nuclear issue. But for the most part, while this is news right now, this is something that has happened for decades. Yes, and thanks for bringing in that perspective. Well, it's time now to find out what is weighing on the minds of our panelists this week. And Steve, I'll start with you. What is weighing on your mind this week? The threat of political violence around the country is weighing on my mind. The Department of Homeland Security last week sent out a memo expressing concern about political violence, not just around the election, but for days and weeks after the election. In talking with VOA's Jeff Selden, our national security correspondent, the concern is very high for political violence around the midterm elections. So between misinformation and disinformation that's been bombarding voters for months, the after effects of the long COVID lockdown and the election denialism by the Republicans, I think that we're going to see more election violence along the lines of what happened to the husband of the Speaker of the House in the days and weeks to come. And that's weighing on my mind. Kane, what's weighing on your mind? I guess I'm going to get a little personal here. I have covered politics now for almost 20 years, and I have covered every midterm and presidential election since 1996. And I used to enjoy covering politics. It used to be my forte. It used to be something I was actively interested in doing. And I find myself frustrated and beside myself in covering elections now. When you go out into a campaign rally or you go and you talk to voters and they say things which seem incredibly difficult for me to understand how they could believe, denying elections, believing in conspiracy theories, feeling that it's important to resort to physical violence in order to affect the outcome of something. These are all things that I honestly did not see 20 years ago. I might not have saw them 16 years ago. I see them now and I don't know as a journalist what I can do to change it. You know, it used to be that simply telling the objective story and getting the objective information out there was what we could do in order to do our jobs and to make sure that people were well informed. But I often find myself not believing people want to be well informed. They just want to be informed with what aligns with their thoughts and their views. 
the polarization that we experience in this country is largely not because people can't be well-informed, it's because they are choosing to not be well-informed and they're believing things which subscribe to some kind of personal worldview rather than the way things really are or really should be. And I don't know how to break that logjam and I don't know how to get through those issues. And I also don't know if it's right or correct that we allow some of these thoughts and some of these beliefs to see the light of day or to even cover them or even to you know give them credence on any airwaves. Well, thank you, Kane, and thank you, Steve, for your thoughts. And we'll end the show on those notes. My thanks go to our panelists, VOA executive producer Steve Reddish and VOA Midwest correspondent Kane Farabaugh. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. Mm-hmm.